Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 92nd episode, it's the return of Andrew Isla. Along the way, we discuss the similarities between Rob Zombie's Michael Myers and Ron Howard's Grinch, how to camouflage your master plan with beautiful language and extremely dumb jokes, and how, once you've done the thing, the doing of the thing is how the thing gets done. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Welcome home, black sea, to all the north you can eat. We Enjoy your time on the list. Let us know that you'll be missed. You've been a busy guy. You've been doing lots of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Seeing lots of things, having lots of emotions, you know, doing that Andrew Isla thing. It's, it's been a very big year for me personally and professionally. Well, mainly professionally, but in a way that felt very personal. <laughs> I guess the trip to Europe was entirely personal, and that was quite a thing. My in-laws took us on a trip to England and France, which was very cool, needless to say. Got to see lots of stuff. Got to see lots of stuff. I made an entire season of a show for the internet with the help of a very excellent voice cast. It was an idea I had in January and it wrapped up in October. So it was ambitious, but I did it. So I feel pretty good about that. Now I have started a day job of actually writing and editing for the movie website looper.com, which is great because now I can stay at home and make my money doing that and still have lots of time to do my own stuff. So it's been a good year. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's like, I just realized we've swung straight into the episode, but it's like, you know what? That's cool. What are we going to do with that way? <laughs> I kind of like mid answer. I was like, oh, is this like catching up? the audience since i'm a returning guest i i i realized mid-answer that was maybe what we were doing so i kind of shifted into that mode myself <laughs> that is okay wow we're breaking with the format it's revolutionary <laughs> i know you've been having lots of suspiria feelings so do you want to talk a little bit about that oh okay yeah yeah suspiria was good i liked it a lot not everyone's gonna <laughs> like it a lot though cool thanks good talk <laughs> <laughs> I was very skeptical about the entire idea of remaking Suspiria, as I think anyone familiar with the original movie was, because the original movie is something that people watch and love entirely for aesthetic purposes. Like, it's all about the sound and the color, and the plot is entirely secondary. There isn't much there, story-wise. So when they announced they were going to remake it, it was like, why? Like, what are you going <laughs> to... If you change the visuals, there's nothing there to remake, but finally did get to see the new one and i actually liked it a lot it's an entirely different kind of project but also it does definitely use the idea of the original and in fact uses the idea of being a remake in some neat ways that that i thought were kind of worked into the themes so i enjoyed it a lot yeah well i wanted to ask you because you're someone who has a real taste for classic film and of the time cinema at least it seems to be a lot of what we talk about. Right. So what is your view on the remake, the reboot, whatever, sort of as a, a general kind of viewpoint? I think 
most of the time it's a bad idea but that's true of basically any kind of <laughs> any kind of art like most of it's bad that's just how <laughs> things are most things are bad <laughs> and i think if you're just i think a lot of remakes are just like well we're gonna put something we're gonna put this franchise or this ip back in the theaters so that people can give us more money again which is what a lot of them are let's you know mm-hmm. to be honest and even that sometimes is fine. Like, that can be fun. I think remakes can be really good if it's like we're going to use the idea of, like, time having passed or of taking old themes and re-examining them in the light of our current times. Like, if you're kind of making a point to do something different but not so different that it's pointless to, you know, remake it. Because some remakes are like, well, we've changed everything so much. It's like, why are we even calling it that anymore? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's complicated. It's the difference between, like, you know, covering someone's song in the way that they do it exactly versus i'm gonna be you know cat power and completely remake the rolling Stones' satisfaction by removing the chorus entirely right and it's like it's still a thing but it's a completely different thing and so it's it's you know i always like get a little bit torn about that where it's like i like covers where i can tell oh that's a cover you're doing a thing you're clearly doing what the other person has done but changing it slightly to make it your own and then there are some where I'm like, oh, so you've, you've been transformative with this, that you, you've made it in something else entirely. Although part of me then goes, well, why would you just call it a cover then? Why not write your own song? But anyway, <laughs> I have complicated feelings about cover music. Right. So I suppose it's a difference between, you know, that new Halloween that just came out and that Rob Zombie Halloween. Right, where the zombie Halloween was a remake in that it had the same plot as the original movie, although he took a different angle on it and to say the least <laughs> as i've said before the that rob zombie halloween is basically like the ron howard grinch movie <laughs> in that it took a kind of perfect stripped down elemental story and then made that the last act of a three-act story that didn't need to be three acts long because the backstory was completely irrelevant those two movies function exactly the same way <laughs> <laughs> It comes down to like, well, why even it's such a weird mix of changing things for no reason and also sticking to things that you didn't need to stick to. And it's like, well, then what was the point? Whereas, you know, that brand new Halloween is actually a sequel. And I think the worst decision they made with that new movie is to just call it Halloween instead of giving it some kind of, you know, title. Because <laughs> it's not a remake. It's a sequel. So it's like Halloween and also its sequel, Halloween. It's a weird idea. <laughs> Again, it's that Fast and Furious thing, you know? Yeah. It's like the Fast and the Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, Tokyo Drift. And then Fast and Furious, which is a different movie. And then Fast Five, (laughs) and then Furious Furious 7. Sometimes the numbers are spelled out, and sometimes they're numerals, and sometimes they're not. Oh, it is my favorite form of bad humor. Yes. Which is when you see numbers replaced uh, in words, you have to then say the entire word. (laughs) Yeah, like like that movie that that Fan Four stick. Yeah, <laughs> like they could have just stuck the numbers twenty eighteen somewhere into the word Halloween. That would have maybe set it apart. Hello twenty eighteen. I was gonna say, but then you fall into the Halloween H two O scenario. <laughs> just which, oh, which was uh, oh, like that movie doesn't have anything to do with water. It the pun doesn't even work on more than the level of like it's been twenty years. Like if they'd put them on a boat, maybe they would have had something going with that title, but they didn't. Yeah, my favorite version of the kind of title is Thur 13 in Ghosts. Yes, I remember that. And I remember <laughs> insisting on referring to it as such when it came out. <laughs> we're pedants and we're awful, but at least we accept it. <laughs> we're just trying to amuse ourselves, that's all. 
Yeah, so, I mean, we talked about it a second ago, but yeah, a lot's happened in the year or so since we've talked. I guess so. I mean, you've created an entire series. I watched the first season of Twin Peaks. You know, a lot has changed. Right, and I'm still waiting on you to continue because I've been enjoying (laughs) living vicariously through your first experience. Yeah, listeners, if you missed that, I basically live tweeted the whole first season of Twin Peaks, but I live tweeted it in my own way where it takes me like an hour and 40 minutes to watch what's a 40 minute episode of tv right because i have to keep pausing it and taking pictures and reacting to things and yelling a lot twin peaks in particular is one of those things that's very fun to watch someone discover because your reactions to it when you go in cold and i know this that was true of me when i first watched it your reactions to everything happening really changed drastically within those first like seven episodes of season one oh yeah i thought it was gonna be about teen mysteries <laughs> yeah i was wrong <laughs> Well, you're right, but also. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to see Lara Flynn Boyle as Nancy Drew, but apparently that didn't happen. (laughs) Well, there is some of that in season two, no spoilers. (laughs) And yeah, it's like, it's something I talked about a little bit with Joseph Scrimshaw, because he talked about Twin Peaks as well. It's that when you know something is capital I important, you tend to give more weight to the smaller thing, especially Twin Peaks, where people do fixate on, you know, a lot of smaller things. But I didn't know which of them was going to be the important ones. So I fixated on everything. For example, you know, the teen drama and my deep and abiding hatred of the Luxottica jazz shrink because I wanted him to die. I wanted him to die so badly. (laughs) I hate that man. (laughs) He is the dirt worst. He is hot alley trash and I hate him so much. Yeah, the one person in the world who Dale Cooper immediately dislikes upon meeting. Yeah, because he's a piece of shit, and I hate him. Yep. <laughs> and not just for the fact that, you know, exotica jazz as a genre is, like, intensely problematic. Right. But also, like, looking at him, and, like, he's saved cocktail umbrellas from all the important things that he has done. And I'm just like, in other characters, that would be sympathetic. I just, I hate you all the more, you terrible person. Right. Ugh. It does help that as I look to my left, I have... One, two, three, three. Uh, about 15 tiki mugs up on a shelf. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the narcissism of small differences, I suppose. Right. That thing where someone you hate and their deal is kind of the same as your deal. So that mm. makes you hate them a lot more because then it feels like they're out to steal your life or something or give you a bad name. <laughs> yeah. Or where someone's going to look at you and think, and think of oh, that guy. Yeah. You're like that guy. And you're like, I'm nothing like that guy. Fuck you. <laughs> There is actually a guy I know who is a friend of a friend who, like, basically has all the same interests as me, but takes it to not even to an 11, to a 14. And, like, I see that and I'm just like, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not starting a beef (laughs) on this podcast. But, like, you know, it's it's the equivalent. Okay, I'll, I'll take an example from your life. Like, you go and see Suspiria, right? This person would make a fan film of Suspiria and then write a think piece about the making of that fan film and how it really defined his life in his later years. I see. Is your skin crawling yet? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) And people would see, oh, you like Suspiria? That other guy likes Suspiria too. You must be the same. And you're like, shut your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So we we mentioned it a second ago, but let's talk about Obsidian National Forest. Because had you actually started it when we talked last or was it in progress? No, the last time we talked was, it was like last summer, right? I think so, yeah. I feel like it was summertime. Because we were, yeah, we were talking about Twin Peaks then too, because season three was going and you hadn't gotten into it yet. And you could tell I was really excited about season three. And that's and right. You didn't know why. You couldn't talk about Don't Zap the Geek. 
because it was like it hadn't happened yet that's right okay so yeah that was quite a while ago yeah it was around the end of last year well it was it was last october that i really got back into making movies and like animation again you know, obviously movies have always been my deal and i took a bunch of film courses in college wanted to transfer to a school where i could major in film and that never happened because none of the schools around me actually had an entire program but that's a whole other thing anyway it was kind of this big defining moment in my life personally at least for myself that i started feeling that itch to like make things again in a way i hadn't in a while because it's hard to make movies by yourself and if you have no money you can't hire anyone to join you in doing such a thing and actually i think twin peaks speaking of it might have had a big kind of influence in that because i was so excited about season three last year as it was happening that like it really got me going in that like experimental art film sort of mindset of like oh it doesn't have to be a big expensive production i can come up with things i would like to do that i can just do on my computer there's something great about that sort of that bubbling fizz of an idea where you're just like i i got the bit in my teeth i have to do this yeah thing. and when you see something that someone else has done where it makes you feel like i've been waiting for an excuse to do this and i don't need one i can just do it and just lean into the fact that it's you know a small independent production with no money you can do that and make it good if you have ideas so last october in 2017 i took part in inktober but in like an animation way where the project that artists do every october where they do an ink drawing every day in october and the whole idea is you get over your your hang-ups or your you know perfectionism and you just do something because it feels good to just do something and if you have that excuse of you have to do one every day so everyone will know that it's more about getting it done than about quality it actually relieves a lot of that stress and you actually do make really interesting things so i was like oh that would be a good way for me to like scratch this itch i've been feeling to make things it's like i'll do a little tiny piece of ink based animation every day and i really enjoyed it and it turned out better than i hoped so then i made a couple other little tiny animated type shorts on my own immediately after that and then it was around january of this year that I was like, you know what? I really like working with these like paper cutout owls that I had been doing. I should do just like a series because then I could just reliably sort of build a bigger thing out of it if I just do, you know, little pieces at a time. And that evolved into what became Obsidian National Forest, which is a series uh, that I ended up making. It's about a spooky forest and there are lots of hints that something terrible has happened here in the past when there used to be people here who aren't here anymore. But we are in the point of view of some owls who are really clueless about everything around them and are just just living their lives. And not just clueless. Some of them are really, really dumb. <laughs> yeah, some <laughs> of them are really dumb. dumb. <laughs> so yeah, I, I decided, well, I want it to be like a series so I can really kind of get into a groove and establish something here. So let's make it like, let's say it'll be 10 episodes and we'll see where that takes us. And I set that goal for myself, like within 2018, I'll do 10 episodes, maybe try to wrap it up around Halloween, because then like the finale can be like a big spooky Halloween episode. And I didn't really know what I was doing other than that that was my concept and I wanted to do 10 little episodes. I ended up getting some really fantastic voice talent involved. A bunch of the voices are just me. And not yeah, to say I was going to say that. It's like, include <laughs> yourself in that list. Because didn't you do like eight voices and they are distinctly different? Three of the main characters are me, which I made easy on myself by just like one of them I pitch up, one of them I pitch down, and one I don't pitch at all. So I cheat a little bit and just say like, you can't tell them apart as much be or because, or you can tell them apart as much rather. You can't tell they're all me as easily because of the pitch going on. And then I do a bunch of little incidental ones too, whenever there's like a, 
one-off bit part. And that was a really fun experiment for myself, too, of, like, practicing that kind of stuff. Not to say that I'm, like, a great voice actor or anything, but I do feel like I developed a lot of skills in practice that it feels good to have done. I actually was shocked when it, when you went through the... There was a little video on your Patreon that just showed off who did what in the voice cast. And I was shocked to see how many you did. Because <laughs> I knew there were a couple where I'm like, oh, yeah, I reckon that's Andrew. For example, I know that there is an egret that is 100% a very kind of relaxed back in the pocket Jojo. But yes, I heard that and I'm like, yeah, that's Jojo. But then I looked and I'm like, oh, that was two. And that was two. And that was two. So yeah, your voice cast was amazing, including yourself. Thank you. No self-deprecation on this podcast. <laughs> okay. And I got Caddy Donnelly, who is a fantastic voice actor. And they actually reached out to me when I started like kind of putting it out there that this was a thing I was working on. And they were like, hey, the project, you know, looks great. If you need any voice actors, like that's what I do. So we should talk. And, you know, we then we did have some talks that I ended up realizing they would be perfect for the lead. And they are. They're amazing. And then they also did a bunch of weird side characters as the thing went on. And they kept asking me to like write more weird side characters because they were having so much fun. <laughs> trying on these different things so they took on more and more <laughs> roles as the thing went on and also my good friend and musician extraordinaire lex kalen came on and did a couple of the major characters and she's fantastic and then jojo did a couple of great voices and she was very nervous about it because she's never done anything like that but i was like well a you're right here in the house with me and you're helping me with this thing anyway <laughs> so like i would really love for you to try a couple of these characters and i I'm so impressed with everything she did in the season as well. So our friend Zaya Grace jumped on as a minor character for the second half of the season and did a great job too as a raccoon. So yeah, we had, we had this little voice cast of five and I think we all did some really, really cool things that really elevated it. And then the visuals were mainly just, I cut out, you know, I made paper cutouts, silhouettes of the owls and perched them in these little sets full of black sticks that I made and I threw some Halloween lights <laughs> into it to give it a spooky ambiance and yeah I just kind of got to play around with it and it ended up being much longer than I expected because my scripts just kind of kept <laughs> kept getting out of control as I kept punishing myself with more and more ambitious ideas but it was fun it ended up being about three hours long all told which I didn't expect but I'm pretty proud of it. <laughs> what was the total number of episodes all up? It was 10 episodes this first season so and the first, like, I decided that after, like, I wrote a pilot script that was, like, seven pages long, which in the finished form was about 11 minutes, because there was a lot of kind of ambient, you know, transition shots and shots of the trees and a lot of kind of pausing. So I was like, all right, seven pages in this format amounts to about 11 minutes, and they'll probably be all about that. I just wanted to do 10 episodes. Let's say they'll all be about the same scale. And that ended up being by far the shortest <laughs> of all 10 episodes. The finale ended up being 31 minutes. <laughs> And then everything else is kind of in between. And I want to talk to you about, there was one particular episode. Because when you came on last time, mm -hmm. we spoke in depth about a particular episode of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. We did. Where Space Ghost follows an ant <laughs> through multiple backgrounds. Yes. For a long time. Yeah. And so, right, I'd say what, towards the end, you had an episode where we follow a spider for an incredibly long time. And I knew, I knew exactly what you were doing. And I was a little bit impressed and a little bit angry. And I was like, I know, I know exactly what he's doing. But I also know that I cannot skip ahead because I have to pay attention because all these bits are important. That's one of the rules of Obsidian National Forest is everything is important. So you have to pay attention. And then you get to the end and I'm like, if he... 
says something about how your son is a moron, I'm going to throw my <laughs> laptop out the window and then I'm going to yell into the world that Andrew Isla, you piece of shit, you did this to me. <laughs> that would be well-deserved. That would have been a little too on the nose. But then you had that be this incredible, like, heartfelt moment for a spider. I, 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 I've... I'm making gestures now. This is an audio medium. You can't see my <laughs> gestures. But to have this be this, like, post-trauma moment for a spider of, like, new beginnings and rebirth and also a little bit of death and sadness. And I'm just like, I was so mad and now I can't be mad anymore and this is all Andrew's fault. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you had emotions. <laughs> because it also needs to be said that the spiders are all subtitled and you're making little, like, sisserous noises of... <laughs> And then you have to read these sort of scribbled subtitles of, in spider language. So you really have to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was going to be really trying on people's patience. And I tried to go a little... Because the spiders came about... Like, like, that was never really an intention. I did have an idea that there would be an episode that was going to focus on just spiders. Like, that was part of my initial outlines. But, like, it was going to just kind of be a joke. And the spiders weren't really going to be characters. I just thought it'd be funny to, like, do a diversion that, like... Meanwhile, here's some spiders that you don't know. And then the spiders kind of became a thing throughout the writing of the first half of the season. And some people seemed to like the spiders and I enjoyed writing for them. And they were just kind of non sequitur transitions where we would cut to spiders saying some kind of weird slice of life drama. And then we would cut back to the owls and it wasn't really anything. But then I ended up deciding it would be fun to like tie them into some of the lore of the place that the spiders aren't aware of. It'd be it'd be really fun to have the spiders be much more aware of everything than the owls are, but they don't talk to each other, so the owls will never know that. And yeah, that episode kind of just kept building into more and new things that I hadn't intended. And I tried to go easy on the subtitles because it's like that might be hard to stare at for very long, but hopefully it worked. I think because of the subtitles and sort of the slow kind of sisterus of the dialogue, it means that the subtitles become this kind of like slow play out. You know, that, like I've referred to in another episode, as like the slow revealing of a royal flush. And so <laughs> it changes the pacing of the conversations to something that I can only imagine as like a filmed version of a Chekhov play. You know, lots of staring off into the middle distance and saying seemingly meaningless things that have great import. And then you right. have a reverse shot of someone else staring off in the middle distance. And it will say something like, the rains are coming. <laughs> and then they would take a slow drag on the cigarette and go but the cherries are ripe <laughs> that is definitely something i absorbed from david lynch because that is kind of his deal as well that uh -huh. sort of chekhovian seeming non sequiturs that are about something you just don't understand but it's about something <laughs> um that makes complete sense that spider episode in particular, I was kind of intentionally blending influences from that fire ant episode of Space Ghost, plus part eight of the new season of Twin Peaks, plus Watership Down. Yeah. Those were my three big influences on, on a lot of the series, really, but that episode in particular. <laughs> yeah, it was it's very good. Thank you. Also, speaking of David Lynch, mm -hmm. why was there a fish in the percolator, Andrew? <laughs> well, it's never explicitly stated... Of course not. Of course it isn't. No, it, it's, ah! it's not technically important. Although it was only on like my third or fourth view through viewing of the of the series that I had a thought about how that happened, and I don't know if it would be. I don't think it's much of a spoiler because I think from where you're at, you already know that like you know Josie's up to some things, right? Like, yes, she's got secrets. 
everyone's up to some things. It's fucking Twin Peaks. Everyone it, has plans. <laughs> it was only after several, you know, rewatches of the series that on that episode I was like, oh, Josie's like hurried off to get coffee for everyone because this federal agent just showed up for the first time. And she's got all these like secrets of her criminal past that no one knows. So my headcanon for the fish and the percolator thing is she got in there panicked because she's like trying to find a way out of this situation with these lawmen and thought she would just distract them by throwing a fish in the percolator because then they wouldn't be able to talk about anything else (laughs) so i think that's how the fish got in the percolator but it's not technically important (laughs) it's yeah not technically important but it is because i watched that episode like six months ago and i I, what was it was it i can't remember if it was you or jojo talking about how the coffee smelled like bacon and my instant answer was, there's a pig in the percolator. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, a couple of days ago, we had some coffee that kind of burnt and had this weird meaty burnt taste just because it had burnt a little bit on the coffee maker. And yeah, there was a pig in the percolator. So was JoJo attempting to distract you from her criminal past? Maybe. Oh, no. <laughs> so coming back to Obsidian National Forest, it actually reminded me, and this is a long bow to draw, so I apologize. There was <laughs> an iOS game, and I'm going to look up the name of it. Oh, here we go. It was called Spider, the Secret of Bryce Manor, Hmm. where essentially what you are is, again, you're a little spider and you are left in a level, which is like clearly the rooms and sort of the space between the walls of a house. Very simple. It's like you use kind of flicking motions to go from one edge of the wall to another and you can make webs. And if you make three lines in a small enough space, it makes a web. And if you enclose a bug in that web, you get to eat the bug and that gives you sustenance. And if you eat enough bugs, you can get to the end of the level. That sounds fun. Yeah, of course, there's some surfaces that you can't go on, and you have to find a way to, like, the certain bugs will fight their way free if, you too, if you're too slow. And it, it, it was a really interesting game. I think I played it on, like, my first iPod Touch, if that should, you know, put the time frame in there. <laughs> right. But then what you found as you went along is, because it's called The Secret of Bryce Manor, as you go through this house, you find that there is, in fact, a mystery at play. It was one of those things where it's really only if you're really paying attention because there are photos in the background. There are like certain things are broken and certain things aren't, you know, certain things are left out. And so it's one of those things where uh, this like seemingly surface level game about, you know, essentially trapping flies and traversing an area. It's again, telling a story. And that reminded me very much of Obsidian National Forest because yeah, that's very much the thing I was kind of going for. So that makes sense. It's one of those things where it's like you could just watch it for some extremely silly owl jokes and raccoon jokes and spider jokes and whatever else. Because again, we're playing it as it is an incredibly deep and you know broad thing and has this sort of complexity to it. And it is. It's also very funny, Andrew. <laughs> and, and occasionally very dumb. <laughs> so I suppose my question at the end of all of that is how do you balance that sort of the, the mythology and the greater story and not lose that kind of in the moment funny stuff Mm, that is a good question thank you (laughs) i mean i think a lot of there's a lot of kind of like mysterious media experiments on the internet if that makes sense like creepy youtube videos and you know args and people experimenting with like the medium of the internet to tell kind of spooky mystery stories and some of it's very good and a lot of it that i've kind of looked into the problem is that the there's nothing interesting on the surface level and you have to actually care about the concept of solving a mystery you know 
And that's true of not just like experimental internet stuff, but like a lot of mystery movies and TV shows and books. That's never super worked for me because it's like I don't care about the basic idea of like world building or mystery solving necessarily. But it can really hook you if like you care already about something (laughs) in the work or if it's at least aesthetically interesting to look at, which is another thing a lot of internet media doesn't try hard enough to do in my experience. (laughs) It's just a matter of like, I mean, it started out very much like the first couple episodes I really didn't. I knew that the concept was always there of like, it's about these really stupid characters in a sort of like slice of life, adult swim sort of way of like, here's just 10 minutes of them reacting to something and it's just jokes. I didn't really know what the bigger thing was going to be, but I thought it would be fun to kind of hopefully catch viewers' interest where once you're laughing at it, you also notice that there's something sinister or mysterious going on in the background. So it kind of just came about where, like, in the beginning, I was just being like, well, here's something mysterious I can think of that I could drop in there, and clearly it's suggesting something. And sometimes I kind of had an idea of what I would do with it later, and sometimes I really didn't. (laughs) That's the thing I really believe in is, like, don't necessarily make a huge, like, five-year plan for your big project. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of webcomics or things of that nature where someone with a really big world in their head and that's great but like if you get too married to like the idea of where the thing's gonna go you're gonna get bored like i've done that myself definitely when i was younger because you just want to get there right you just want to get there and and then you know the story so well that you've lost interest in telling it because you're just getting stuff out that you've already been thinking of for so long there's no more surprises for you i think a great way for my taste a great way to like write is to make something that's going to be able to keep surprising yourself as you write it so to kind of leave yourself lots of doors that you could go through in the future and make it look like you set something up and then you will look (laughs) very clever but also you get to decide things later on so it's a delicate balance i think for anyone who wants to write that kind of long-form storytelling but for my part it's basically been what's a funny situation that i could write about and then once i've gotten that in there i just kind of plug in spooky stuff i guess that's not a great answer i don't really know what my method was (laughs) It just kind no, of no, that's it. fine. And I mean, like, part of the fun of Obsidian National Forest for me is some of the language that you use, especially in some of the earliest episodes. There are some just absolutely beautiful turns of phrase that really, like, I was scribbling them down when I was going through it a second time. Just some, and like, occasionally where you'll have these, these like, great kind of expo speak, extremely long and complicated sentences that will end in something sharp and profane. <laughs> and I'm just like, that never fails to tickle me. Like, you know, the... Jojo as this sort of like Kathy Bates in the Golden Compass, Hester the Hare kind of creaky rocking chair voice talking about how a bullet is something that's sharp and loud and it comes upon you when you're unawares and it hurts like six motherfuckers. And it's just like, ah, there's that sting in the tail. (laughs) The night she's like a lady snake, cold, dead and stunningly aroused. And they're just like, Edru, can you? You can't just put that in there and then just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) But I did. You did, monster. Thank you. I'm I'm glad you like that. I pulled up a picture of some of my notes and I've just scribbled things like scream peeking. And she took my love and my CD player. It's like... 
a lot of it is just like channeling like people I know. Like I have a couple old friends from school who I kind of like think of their conversational sort of cadence, and I've plugged that in a few times. You know, people just I've met a lot of like I've made a lot of friends from the south in the internet age. Uh, in our little like comic circle, there's a lot of people like that's where I learned the word haint. <laughs> which oh my god it's the funniest word when i used hate ah, in a hate. national forest a lot of people reacted to that i was like yeah it's a great word i i hadn't heard it until recently either it's like a southern ghost thing so like the character brysic is kind of a repository for all of the weird like southern turns of phrase i've absorbed as someone who is not from the south but has been talking to people from the south Yes, all are welcome to join me in the Elysium Fields of Inebriation. <laughs> that character, Jeff, is basically, he started, I don't know that he's really this in any successful way, but he started as basically a Tom Waits impression. That was what I was going of for. Of course he did. I was excited and sad to realize while recording my voice lines for the finale that I'd finally gotten comfortable with doing Jeff's voice <laughs> as we wrapped up the season. <laughs> he was always the biggest challenge because that's the one where I don't pitch. So you're just hearing me doing this kind of, weightsy and drawl and it, it's always a little more uncomfortable like with Brysic and Crispin it's much more a matter of like well I know it'll be I can kind of rely on what I'm gonna do to it and post to sort of remove it from my own self like I don't hear myself when I'm editing their lines I hear this completely different thing which is sort of embarrassing because I end up laughing at their lines which <laughs> <It's just> like <laughs> makes me feel worse like well I wrote that and said it so it feels like very vain to be laughing at it but also it sounds like a completely different thing and and it's it's always a pleasant surprise to do that. <laughs> Whereas Jeff reminded me of have you seen Freaks and Geeks? Yes, it's been a long time, but I definitely watched it in college. There is one kid and whose name is escaping me, who is like this he wears glasses and has a middle part and wears a lot of black. And at one point they go to him for advice and he's just sort of a little bit aloof and above it all and kinda of gives them off handed advice in this way. That is really like, you know, you're going to visit the old sage out in the desert kind of feeling. And Jeff always reminded me of him in a way I couldn't put my finger on. <laughs> He's going at a different speed than everyone else around him. Yeah. And that gives him a sort of distance. Yeah, I definitely started with like, well, here's a character who could just be sort of, yeah, like I said, just kind of running at a different speed and they always have to like go to him. And then it kind of, I think, in the writing and how I think of him evolved into this kind of sad character. At least that's how I started thinking of him. I don't know if much of that comes across, but... He's sort of lonely, I think. <laughs> and I started really enjoying that, especially that, and that really fed right into that kind of Tom Waits quality of him being wistful all the time. So yeah, I guess to sort of answer your that question you asked a while ago, like I think that the secret to writing for me is to just amuse yourself. <laughs> yeah. Try to amuse no one but yourself and also leave yourself lots of doors to open later rather than deciding exactly what you want right away because i think the thing i'm proudest of and not to say that i did it great or anything but i think the thing that really excited me about obsidian national forest is i figured out the characters as i went along in a way that compared to anything else i've you know ever attempted i, I felt like really got somewhere interesting just because they started as jokes and then you'll eventually find if you pay attention to what you're writing that you probably have set yourself up to do something more with stuff you've already told because you weren't trying to do anything more than just amuse yourself. So I suppose it's like, and I'm thinking I've, I listen to a lot of stuff about how, you know, how comics are created and how people plan things. And it's like, there's that Chris Claremont thing where I'm going to give you 15 threads and maybe later, if I need one, I can pull one of those threads and use it for something else. I wasn't planning with the 15. I was just giving myself lots of toys in the toy box. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And to bring it back around to Twin Peaks again, too, you know, since obviously David Lynch has been a huge 
huge influence on my whole storytelling sensibility. No. Never, Andrew. I know, I right? Never say it's such a, a thing. It's a well-kept secret. Uh, <laughs> but, like, a thing I think of a lot when I'm, like, writing is the fact that they didn't know who killed Laura Palmer until they started writing season two. Like, I think that really sums up a fascinating kind of insight into the writing process of, like, if you're paying attention to your own writing, but not really trying to do anything other than write something interesting, you'll probably write your way into the thing you were going to get to eventually in a way that feels much more organic than just working backwards from the ending. Yeah, it's, it's the other comic book creator thing, which is the Larry Hama method, which is, you know, how many issues of G.I. Joe were you plotting ahead? Two or three pages at most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm doing the thing, and in doing the thing, the thing gets done. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that you can't do setup and payoff. It's just a matter of, like, looking backwards and figuring out what you may have set up when you weren't trying. There's a lot of stuff in Obsidian National Forest, like the last few episodes of the season, that I think plays as, like, big twist reveals, or at least is like, ah, that's what you were doing. And it wasn't what I was doing, but I did realize, <laughs> like, oh, hey, here's a thing I mentioned offhand as kind of a spooky setup-y type thing earlier that I wasn't sure what it was, but I thought it might be interesting. And now it's going to be an entire episode, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's a really satisfying way to write, as long as you, you know, don't tip your hand too much and once it was the thing that you had done it had therefore become the thing that you were doing by the nature of it being done <laughs> exactly <laughs> hey philosophy fun <laughs> ah the no I, I was gonna say I, I could do more variations on that where the doing of the thing is the doing of the thing but <laughs> i think that I would actually disappear up my own butt at that point <laughs> and actually cease to exist as part of the Obsidian National Forest experience, mm -hmm. you had wanted to have a rap party, and you approached me early on. You said, hey, maybe you could do some drinks for the rap party. And because I'm me, then began like a week-long brainstorming session involving charts and spreadsheets. Yes. And recipes. <laughs> and I think, I can't remember, how many did I end? I think I ended up giving you seven. All yeah, up. I think there were seven. Seven final recipes, but I think I went through maybe 22 recipes all <laughs> up. Just like, because listeners, what I wanted to do is, and whenever someone says that some drinks are for a party, my thought is, okay, I want to give someone the most variation that I can out of the least amount of alcohol purchase. Because the last thing you want is to make someone buy a bottle of something that they're going to use two shots of in the course of a party, because that's a waste. Mm -hmm. So anything that you add to it has to be like doing double and triple duty in something else. Or, you know, you have something where, in, in our case, where it turns out something that's readily available in one place is extremely expensive and not available in another, and that will then cross out eight of your recipes. And you're like, okay, well, I need to build it on something else. So what I ended up doing was coming up with a series of drinks, and there was this lovely thing on Twitter where all of the guests that said rap party just started tweeting at me. And those tweets got increasingly, or rather, decreasingly coherent. <laughs> yeah, it was a good night. That's always a rewarding thing when at a distance you can see, yeah, people are enjoying your stuff, but also your drinks are working the way they're supposed to. Because, listeners, I don't know if you've ever tried any of the drinks I put at the end. Uh, Matthew you cocktails don't play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was your moment of horror when you realized jojo had jumped ahead to the spider bed time which was not supposed oh my to god be, <laughs> which is supposed to be an end of the night knock you out drink because here's the thing, even in testing it that was fierce as hell and i think it's, i'm gonna pull up the recipe because i just need to explain to people exactly how potent this is it was real good Oh yeah, the spider's bedtime. It starts with two and a half ounces of rye whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of punti maize, which is an extremely bitter vermouth, mm -hmm. a quarter ounce of elderflower liqueur, and a dash of Peychaud's bitters. 
it's good, but you realize about halfway through that you've committed to something when you have that drink. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's like you, you're sitting there, and it's like it's one of the few drinks where I've actually felt it go to my head midway through one drink. And then you realize that, oh, you're Marty McFly. This is heavy. <laughs> and so to hear that midway through the evening, you jump to that, you're like, oh, you have just committed to something. Yeah. Huh. Um, I think my personal favorite was the Rowdy Jam. That was delicious. Yeah, that one was. I'll pull up my list here. It had raspberry jam in it, and I think there was a little bit of a little bit of champagne, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was gin and elderflower liqueur and champagne and a teaspoon of raspberry jam. Yes. So you put the elderflower and the gin and the jam into a shaker, so the jam thins and thins and just become. And because you're straining it through the top of the shaker, it loses any kind of like kludginess to the jam, and it just becomes this like lovely sweet kind of flavor. And then you add the champagne, which really mixes things up. And yeah, it's one of those things where, like, the first time I told someone that I put marmalade in a cocktail, they're like, are, are you crazy? What are you doing? And I'm like, no, no, trust me. Yeah. It works because especially something that's, you know, quite sour like marmalade, if you take out all of the bits that would get stuck in your teeth, you're just left with this note, essentially. So you, it's a syrup without a syrup. Right, exactly. That, that one was a big hit, I remember, with, with everyone. So I was very glad to see, because the thing is, every once in a while, when I'm adding the drinks onto the ends of episodes, I thought, no one's going to make this. <laughs> and to hear that an entire party was based around them makes me very happy. It was a bit of a blur for me, because to be honest, at the rap party, I was still finishing the finale. <laughs> because, again, the, the sort of spiraling ambition in the last few episodes there, they really got out of hand, and I was rushing to finish everything. So I was still having the drinks, although not as much as everyone else was, because everyone else was like playing video games and this makes it sound very sad but i was having a good time everyone was playing video games right in front of me and i was sitting at the desk with the computer editing the finale <laughs> while we were which is why i didn't talk to you very much during that time even though i was like That's oh fair. man this is so great and i really want to like thank lucas and tell him about how well this is going but like I, I i'm just my brain is fried but you know i could see everyone else was was giving you feedback about how well it was going so and that's fine and that is somehow also again the most you thing to be like yes frivolity is going on around me and this is great and everyone that i've enjoyed but with one hand you're like clicking on a mouse and being like i just i, just, I need to tighten that that's too long that bit i have to yeah just just adjust it yeah slightly. that was basically how that party went and now that you know we've we've wrapped for a while, and we're sort of in between seasons. I am writing season two right now, but we are we're gonna do part of my original you know request to you to come up with some cocktails was that then I'm gonna do like a little featurette where the owls talk about the drinks and share the recipes, and you know that'll be part of our like mid season sort of break thing. There's gonna be a short film coming out about these owls, sort of out of character, which I've done with a couple times with like little promo things of like them talking as if they're actors on the show we're gonna do one of those talking about the drinks so you can have all these recipes and people will be you know directed to your brilliant work hooray that's gonna happen at some point in the in the very near future here while we start ramping up for season two excellent that sounds like that sounds like a good thing and actually you know what i just realized we're at like the 50 minute mark and we haven't talked about the invisible ray that's true that's the, another big project i started this year <laughs> although that one's less of a project more of a hobby <laughs> All right, well then let's tell us about this hobby. Okay, people listening to this show are probably at least vaguely familiar with my wife Jojo. Jojo Seams has been mentioned, we've mentioned her a few times, obviously. And Elle Collins of Intuit and other internet media analysis forums. Elle's great. 
Um, Media Luminary L. Collins. Yes, Media Luminary L. Collins. The three of us have been friends for several years, and we have often talked over the years about how much we enjoy kind of discussing movies because we're all kind of on the same page in terms of, like, we've all got different experiences and different angles, but, like, you know, there's certain people where it's like, oh, yeah, we're on the same wavelength discussion-wise, you know, conversationally. That kind of thing where it's like, oh, man, I just love talking to this person about this one thing. So JoJo and I have been guests on Intuit, Elle's other podcast a few times talking about various movies we like and after every episode finally we, were, we eventually started just going like we should just do this all the time we should have a podcast that's just us in a different kind of format and finally this year we we did it so the invisible ray is a podcast in which l collins and jojo seams and myself just the three of us so far we haven't branched out into doing guests because that kind of keeps it nice and casual because L's got, you know, other podcasts they do, and we've got our stuff, so we're like, well, we don't really want to add a whole other thing to our plate, but what if we just use this excuse to, like, every now and then we just get on Skype for an hour or two and talk about a movie and just make it a podcast, because we love doing that so much, and then making it a podcast will kind of force us to make time to do it. The basic idea is the three of us share movies that mean a lot to us, and more often than not, it's a matter of one or two of us sharing the movie with the others. Like, for instance, you know, it'll be a movie JoJo and I love, but Elle's never seen, but has always wanted to. Which is usually the case, because we have such similar taste in movies that, like, anytime one of us mentions something, the others are usually like, oh, I've always wanted to see that, and I've just never made time for it. So yeah, we watch a movie, and then we just discuss it. It's a very very bare-bones sort of movie podcast. I think the thing that kind of sets us apart is that we do movies we like, which is not what a lot of movie podcasts are about. Yeah. <laughs> there are some podcasts that are, like, about why movies are good, but they feel few and far between, and most of the popular movie podcasts are about, like, riffing on bad things, which is also great, but it doesn't have a very consistent release schedule, but we try to do one every couple weeks, because, again, that's part of the kind of low, laid-back vibe we wanted to get, It's just every now and then we'll just do one. So we've done seven episodes we just put out our seventh one a couple days ago it was about all that jazz the bob fossey movie with roy scheider which jojo and i had never seen but really enjoyed and it means a lot to l we've done rocky horror picture show lynch's dune a night of the hunter so it's a very it's a very eclectic mix of movies but you forgot mystery men we did mystery men that was like the second or third one we did which made me so happy. <laughs> Dracula AD 1972 was our Halloween special. Again, there's not really any kind of consistent theming or formatting beyond just, you know, if you are at all familiar with me and or Jojo and or L and have seen us talk about movies, it's just kind of a venue to do that. And each episode's about an hour and we just talk about a movie and put it out there. It's been fun. It's extremely fun. And I think it kind of bridges the gap. Because the thing is, all of L's podcasts, I mean, they've gone on record and said that they love podcasts that are conversations. Yes. They love to just sit down with a person and just talk it out and just see how it plays. And anyone who's listened to Intuit as much as I have will get that immediately. And this seems to really kind of hit the middle of that Venn diagram between conversational podcast and podcast about sort of the craft of movies. Because it's not just, hey, this is movie is great and let's talk about why. But it's like, let's really get into why some of these choices were made and what those choices add or detract to the overall theme. But it's also, it never feels like homework. Like at no point are you ever sitting there going, oh, I am, you know, attending a lecture on the use of light in German cinema. It's like, <laughs> right. of course not. And each of you bring your own viewpoints, but you're all so clearly in, I wouldn't say in concert, but you're all so open to the experience of having this conversation with people that at no point is it, and this is something that drives me nuts. Maybe it's because I'm a conflict averse person. 
but when I listen to a podcast and two people disagree on something and then they just sort of bounce off each other for a couple of sentences where it's just like, no, it's like this. No, it isn't. It's like this. And I'm just like, oh, stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. You should have cut all of this. Please right. just go back to talking about the movie. Yeah, I know what you mean. Ugh. So, so I actually, like, I got a little chill up as I was even <laughs> describing that. I, I hate it so much. No offense to anyone who does a podcast where you argue, but it, it puts the wind at me every time. But The Invisible Ray has, yeah, this sort of great thing of it's kind of like i can only compare it to a situation i've had a couple of times where you know you go to a movie with some friends and then you go to a bar afterwards and then like there are some movies where you sit down and you immediately have to talk about the movie yeah and in that conversation because it is so fresh for all of you you know there's very little okay we have to sit and stop and explain what it is that happens like no we can actually just talk about the thing the only recent examples coming to mind i know there have been many many others but the recent examples that come to mind are i did that around a girl walks home alone at night mm-hmm. which is incredible and i very much hope it comes up on the invisible race soon and i did that with prometheus which is the other end of the spectrum right and that was just me and i think it was uh, my friends ginger and dan where we just like sat down and just like okay what the hell did we just watch yeah. And we just kind of banged our head against this topic for a while. That's been, you know, a big part of the movie going experience, especially going to the theater to see something new, is then for the rest of the evening, we talk about what we saw. And that always is a really, like, invigorating conversation for us, especially as people who, like, also make things together, since we're kind of creative partners as well. Like, picking apart something we had a feeling about and bouncing our reactions back and forth is such a huge part of our lives. Really, we do it, you know, every time we watch something. And, you know, that's not really how everyone does movies, which kind of took me a while in my adult life to realize, like, oh, not everyone wants to have, like, a two-hour conversation about what we just watched. (laughs) And that's fine. But, like, I can't wrap my head around not doing that. (laughs) And we have some other friends who who are very much like that as well. Um, But, you know, L. Collins is clearly someone who also really enjoys that angle of it. And so often when we'd see something new, we would, like, tweet at L and be like, we really want to discuss this movie with you. Which is finally why the podcast eventually happened, because it's like, well, let's just do it. And then, you know, it doesn't really matter all that. Like, we're not all that invested in, like, getting an audience, although we appreciate everyone who, like, is enjoying it. Like, I know you you always react right away, which is very much appreciated. We can tell you're enjoying <laughs> it, and we're, we're so happy for that. But also, like, it was kind of nice to have a project where, like, we're not really all that worried about anyone listening to it. It's mainly just an excuse to, like, have a phone call with Elle for an hour, because... When do people even do that these days unless it's to record a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not like I have an entire podcast around giving myself a chance to talk to people who I like. I mean, I I don't know. It's it's a mystery. (laughs) Yeah. And on that note, I think we should probably wrap things up. So, Andrew, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on. Like, I haven't really gotten a chance to, like, promote Obsidian National Forest or discuss it very much beyond just, like, tweeting out links constantly. So, in addition to how much of a pleasure it always is to talk to you, I really appreciate this chance to kind of plug it a little bit, because that's nice. Like I said, season one has wrapped up. It's all up there online. It's about three hours altogether, but each episode is only, you know, 11 to... 20 minutes varying so you can just do <laughs> one of those pause at time. There. that was a deep pause Andrew <laughs> yeah it's it's astounding how that kind of got out of control there but I'm happy with that I wouldn't want it to be any shorter than it is but it got longer than I expected it to anyway it does have its own website at obsidiannationalforest.com Um, That's got all the episodes and all the little promo stuff that we've done. You can uh, subscribe to me on YouTube. You can smash that like button. (laughs) If 
if you want to see when when I've got new stuff coming up because uh, like I said we are in sort of the mid the between season hiatus now but it's going to come back in the new year I'm on Twitter although you know as we are all agreeing lately these days Twitter is kind of terrible but I'm on there because it's a connection to everyone else in the world and that is at Andrew Isla A-N-D-R-E-W-I-H-L-A and you know Obsidian National Forest has its own Twitter you can follow, you can find through there as well. The Invisible Ray is available in, I think, pretty much any way you choose to get podcasts on iTunes or in your podcatchers or whatever. It's just under The Invisible Ray. And yeah, I guess that's pretty much what I'm putting out there these days. So people can tune in for an ageless hum unheard or bloops from beyond or a noble forest rumblings? Yes. If that's your I jam. I wrote it all down, that's... Andrew. I wrote it all down. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> All right, Edgy, so thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you for having me. If travel is searching And home what's been found I'm not Thank you very much to Andrew Isla for his time. For Andrew's signature cocktail this week, I've grabbed a few things that were lying around, the ruins of previous cocktails, if you will, and combined them into a drink that I'm calling the Tina. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of botanical gin, half an ounce of extra dry vermouth, three quarters of an ounce of limoncello, and a dash of green chartreuse. Shake vigorously and strain into a cocktail glass. Garnish with a piece of lemon peel that you've twisted over the drink. Most drinks are never either, but this drink is both. Enjoy! Matthew is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Wednesday with a bonus episode in between, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. That new laptop is only several thousand dollars away. Patrons get bonus cocktail episodes, physical mail, and I really just appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? 
If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash you with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one with every song I've ever used, including this one. It's Ruins by First Aid Kit. I just love First Aid Kit. Their harmonies are just beautiful. I highly recommend their album, The Lion's Roar. It's pretty perfect. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. I'm not sure who the guest will be next week, but it may be one of my last episodes before I have my usual end-of-year hiatus. So join me, won't you?